Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. We're back once again with another episode of the Fail Critics Podcast, and once again, we're only here with three members. Uh, I'm Steve Norman, and I'm joined by Jerry McCauley. Hello. Owen Hughes has returned. Hello, yes. Greatest comeback since Lazarus. Exactly. No, well, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. There was, there was some quite decent comebacks in the football this weekend, maybe. Lazarus is quite a big comeback to to live up it to. Was, it, yeah. it was literally biblical. <laughs> yeah, uh, I might have done myself up a little bit there. You've you've given yourself yeah. a lot to live up to now, so <laughs> yeah. we're fully more appropriate maybe to say best comeback since whatever zombie movie you last saw since those zombies came back from the dead. I mean, uh, Paranorman, I think, was the last one I saw. There you go, greatest yeah. greatest comeback since the ghosts turned up in, in and the zombies turned up in Paranorman. But this more appropriate. Yeah. Mm. We are without James Diamond. <laughs> that sounded like R two D two was joining us instead of James. <laughs> that, was, that was my text message down. I apologise. Just keeping you on your editing toes, Steve. Um, <laughs> anyway, James Diamond is not joining us this week. Um, he's ill. Not sure what's wrong with him. Um, maybe drink related. <laughs> um, but yes, this week we're reviewing Looper and. Um, for some reason, James decided to make it a Bruce Willis special for what films we've watched this week. Although I thought it would have been better to do that when Die Hard 5's out. But anyway, I'm not in charge, so <laughs> it's not down to me. Um, so yes, which Bruce Willis film did um, you watch, Jerry? Uh, I went for one that's maybe not perhaps Bruce Willis's major you know, the greatest film where he played a major role. Is it where he played the voice of the dog in the Rugrats Meet the Wild Thornberrys movie? I did not know that even existed. Wow. <laughs> it's not it's not as good as the Flintstones Meet the Jetsons in terms of uh, cartoon <laughs> crossover movies, but yeah, he does get a voice credit for that film. Um, wow. You're expanding my cinematic horizons tonight, Steve. I know. Just, um, like, just like when I told you that Gary Oldman was related to Big Mo from EastEnders. That that still blows my mind. Yeah, that, that genuinely is still. Every now and again, I just think, Jesus, how is, how does <laughs> that even Jesus. happen? <laughs> um, the film I watched uh, is probably, I think, the best film that he has been in. Although it's not him in a title role, it is, of course, Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino, nineteen ninety four. Um, I don't think I really need to go too much into it, do I? I think everybody's seen it. If you haven't seen this film and you're listening to this podcast, I mean. There can't be that many people who are listening to this podcast and haven't seen Pulp Fiction. I mean, it's just it's beyond my comprehension. But 
for those of you who don't know, um, it's also there's all sorts of stuff going on. There's all different, lots of different storylines. Um, and Jules and Vincent, which is John Travolta um, and Samuel L. Jackson, uh, are out to find a, stole, a stolen suitcase, basically, and all sorts of other stuff's going off with lots of different uh, cast members. Blah, blah, blah. Don't need to do the story, do I? Um, focusing on Bruce Willis's bit, I actually think he, he sort of ties the film together a lot, I think. I mean, you, you see him early on, and he you know when he reappears, it's kind of... Yeah, it, it sort of keeps the spine of the film going, you know, because I was looking at him when I was watching it this week. And he is used, and considering in 1994, Bruce Willis was a major, major star. I mean, he will have been, I am thinking about it, he will have been the biggest, one of the biggest leading men in Hollywood. Would, would it be right to say, you know, in 1994? I think that would be fair to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the film's just full of them, isn't it? The, the whole uh, film, but... That's Willis the, is probably one of the the biggest in it. At the, at the time, I'd say yeah, he's at, at the time he's bigger than Samuel L. Jackson. Anyway, I'd mm. say. Yeah, I think this kind of made Samuel L. a bit more, didn't it? I think this was yeah. more of a mm-hmm. big role for him. Um, in terms of you know, we we talked last week. Uh, I think it was last week uh, when we were talking about Inglorious Bastards about the confidence that Tarantino has to have these sort of big names playing relatively minor parts. You know. Minor, think, minor parts, but integral to the plot. Yes. They're, 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 it's not just a needless cameo or needless shoehorning in of an actor for a few scenes. It's actually relevant to what's going on in the film. Exactly. And he has, you know, those characters are sort of well-developed enough to not just be a little aside and have someone walk on. You know, they're, they're sort of fully formed characters in their own right. You know, there, there's a lot of these little characters in all his films. And he always gives them enough... Um, sort of love in a way in, in terms of how he's developed the character you know he's, he's not just done it as an aside or something oh, I need to fill this in it, there's real care and attention goes into it and I think Bruce Willis' character he's um, Butch Coolidge in Pulp Fiction it's kind of the perfect example of this Bruce Willis is probably one of the biggest leading men in Hollywood at the time and he's not the star attraction he's not you know the main um, focus of the film and yeah, his character is still a real person that you feel a lot, you know, there's a lot going on, you get a lot of information about him. And it's just fantastic the way that he has that confidence to to, to create all these little characters. And Pulp Fiction is probably the best example of it. And obviously with the the title will suggest he's, he's trying to do little vignettes and things like that with, with lots of different characters. But it is fantastic, the, the style and the, the confidence as a director to be able to just say, yeah, just going to have... Bruce Willis is, is this character and he's going to do this, this and this, but it's not that integral. Um, same with, you know, there's, there's all there's characters throughout his films and, and through this one as well. You know, he, it, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's a great film. I really enjoy watching it every time. And God knows how many times I've seen it now, but it's just fantastic. Yeah, it's it's one of my favourite films ever. I mean, it's just awesome. As you say, every character in it is just sort of... Um, integral to the plot, but also they, they all add something. There's, there's something to discover each time you watch it with each character. I think it's just such a fantastic film. And Willis, you're right, he's, he's, he's brilliant in this as well. Yeah. Um, so, Owen, which Bruce Willis film did you watch this week? Um, well, I wanted to choose a film that um, of his that I hadn't seen before. So it did kind of rule out choosing like Pulp Fiction or, or Die Hard or Fifth Element or something like that. Um, so, uh, I, I watched Surrogates, uh, quite recently. That was, that was still, um, 
Sorry, are we getting some problem? No. Uh, okay. <laughs> Just heard a beep. I didn't have it open. Anyway, sorry, I'll carry on. Um, <clears throat> yeah, surrogate. So um, it kind of, it actually fits quite well with our Looper review, I think. It's kind of, it's a film that's set in the future. and Yeah, so it's a fairly recent film. It's from 2009, directed by uh, Jonathan Mosto, who, whose only other film I'd seen is Terminator 3. So I didn't really have much uh, in the way of high hopes for, for surrogates. But it's based on a comic book series. It's set in this futuristic world where humans live in isolation. Um, but basically they interact through their surrogate robots. So it's kind of like uh, Avatar, you know, and they've got their avatars, except these aren't giant blue American Indian aliens. Um, I was about to say, are they blue or are they humans? No, they're, they're human. Well, they're, they're sort of humanistic features and stuff. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, basically Willis plays a cop in this. Of course he plays a cop, plays a cop in most of his films. Uh, who's forced to leave his home for the first time in years um, in order to investigate the murders of some other surrogates, some other surrogates. But the, the murder of these surrogates leads to the death of the people who are controlling the surrogates. So it's quite um, an interesting plot. What it's got going for it is that I think it's a really interesting concept. It's, it seems like an interesting concept to me. I thought that was one of the more interesting aspects of the film Avatar, actually. But there's a lot of problems with Avatar. They're well documented, so I'm not going to go into that. But the, it has the same kind of um, concept to it. And the themes that are developed around that, so stuff like um, Bruce Willis's wife only ever communicates with him via her surrogate. They've never actually spoken to each other in person in, in years since their son died, actually. I was going to say, question, how do they have kids and have sex? How does that work? Yeah, it's not really discussed uh, or dis dis explored very much. Um, they seem to be able to have sex and stuff with their surrogates. But, yeah, it's not really explained how they end up having kids. So, I don't know, actually. But, um, yeah, it's quite. There's, there's other aspects to the film as well. So, it's got kind of like this big brother element to it. So there's this this um, guy who's in the uh, like the police station, I guess, but he can see through each of these surrogates' eyes, and he can basically see everything that's going on. And there's a uh, Ving Rhymes is, is in it as well, who's from Pulp Fiction, of course, and um, he's the leader of this cult of humans who view the surrogates as abominations. So he's got quite a lot of interesting elements to, that make up this film, but unfortunately, it's executed fairly poorly. Um, uh, one of the things that actually bugged me about the film, they introduced this idea quite early on in the film that just absolutely gives away the big twist in the end. And I'm not going to say what it, what, what it is in case, you you know, perhaps you watch it and you don't spot it. But I saw it really early on and I saw everything coming after that. So it's just this fundamental flaw of a sci-fi mystery story that once you see something quite quite obviously signposted fairly early on. There's no tension to the rest of the story, which is a bit of a shame. But, yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed the, the story to it. Um, well, the sort of elements that made up the story, I guess, rather than the, uh, the whole... Uh, it's not really better than the sum of its parts. And also in this, which ties it into Looper, uh, Willis's sub surrogate is basically him in makeup and a wig, and it looks a bit ridiculous. Now, I know, I know it's meant that to look... drag kind of make put a wig or what? No, no, no. It's kind of meant to look a bit like... Um, a bit a bit robotic, you know? So it's um, it's a bit like an... And it is an android. but it, So it kind of looks a bit waxy. Uh, and they've made him look quite young. So to compare it to Gordon Levitt's makeup in Looper, 
where he's made to look like a, a young Bruce Willis, that just looks a hell of a lot better than it does in in surrogates. It doesn't I mean, look in, in surrogates. It doesn't look like a Bruce Willis version of Crichton, does it? <laughs> it looks like a Bruce Willis version of Data more than Crichton. He hasn't got like the the bumpy head, but he just looks a bit weird. It's a bit off-putting, actually. Um, <laughs> but it's the you know it's the kind of film that would have been really good if it was made in the sort of mid to late eighties with Schwarzenegger in the lead role. Paul Verhoeven in charge, you know, and you can kind of tell from the source material, they're obviously inspired by films like that. But, uh, yeah, as it is, it's just kind of decent-ish sci-fi thriller, um, which flatters to deceive a little bit. It's it's, in, it's worth a watch for some of the concepts that they, they develop, but, yeah, it's not a great film. Well, I wanted to do the same um, as you, Owen, and and watch a Bruce Willis film that I'd not seen before, but time just got away from me this week, so I haven't been able to do that. I haven't even watched oh, any... I thought you were going to say, oh, and I realised I'd seen every single Bruce Willis film that's no, ever been made, No, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately not. It is one of my life goals. Um, but no, I didn't it's even... It's an admiral goal. It's an admiral one. I, I didn't even manage to see any film this week other than Looper. So I'm just going to review one that I've seen before I can do off the top of my head. <laughs> I've seen Armageddon so many times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I could probably do that or Die Hard off the top of my head. Which one do you want? Uh, die Hard. We didn't have a proper Die Hard discussion on Favourite Cops 1, did we? No, and we, and we probably should. So yes, 1988, Die Hard comes out. John McClane is trying to get home for Christmas to see his family. The base for every good Christmas film, I think, really. Someone trying to get home to see their family. He stops by his wife's work to pick her up for Christmas and uh, gets embroiled in a terrorist plot and single-handedly manages to take it down. I'm sure everyone's seen it. It's brilliant. There's no other yeah, words to describe it. I mean, I, but I was going to say this about Die Hard and I'll say it about Armageddon. They don't make action films and they don't make blockbusters like those two anymore. They don't make them as good as that. And I don't know why it's happened, but, you know, other than sort of some of the superhero films, you don't get a blockbuster like Armageddon anymore and you don't get an action film like Die Hard anymore, by and large. For the last decade, I reckon. Not the same quality, really. No. I think the thing that set Die Hard apart was he was such a every man character, you know, and especially yeah. when he just had, most of the 80s, there was people like Stallone, Van Damme, well, yeah, he's Bruce, Barney, Bruce, and he's more of a normal guy, well, Bruce, Bruce Willis is obviously, you know, he, a lot of his roles, he's portrayed as a hard man, but he's not built like a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger or a Van Damme, is he? He's not, you know... I mean, he's complete... physically imposing, but yeah, he's not but he's, 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 extent, he's yeah. not like massively gym-built and steroid-ridden and muscle-bound, is he? So you can so you can believe it. when you see Arnie in like playing a cop in a cop's uniform, it just looks a bit ridiculous on him because of the way he's built. But on you know Bruce Willis, just looks like a kind of normal kind of guy who looks a bit hard. Mm. It's just very intense, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. But well, no. it's a good it's a good film. It's a weird film though because although it's like an action film, it's my mom's favourite film, which I still find a bit weird. And my mum would love something like Die Hard. I don't consider it a, like a so ladies' film. Don't but... <laughs> by the way, 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's too many things to start making them. Wow. It's because it's a Christmas film. I mean, I'm hoping for Die Hard, I'm hoping for Die Hard 5 they take that back to Christmas as well and, and do something there. Die Hard with a Vengeance wasn't Christmas, was it? No, no. Uh, neither was Die Hard 4, but the first two were. and I mean, that adds something to it, I think. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what, but... Yeah. Mm. It's a great film. I think Christmas or not, Die Hard is, is just a great film. Yeah, and you know, if like I said about Die Hard 2 a couple of weeks ago, if you're ever going on holiday, watch it before just in case, you know, terrorists attack <laughs> the airport. If you're ever going to an office Christmas party, watch Die Hard beforehand just in case. Pick up some handy tips. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with being prepared. Sound advice. Mm. This is why we need James to actually talk about films rather than... <laughs> The nonsense. Um, before we go on to our review of Looper, then, Owen, you and James both managed to see Killing, I mean, killing Them Softly this week. Um, yep. I think we'll review it properly next week when James is back. But do you want to just give people an overview of what the film was about and how good it was, or if it was any good? Uh, yeah, sure, okay. Um, I mean, as I said on the last podcast that I was actually around for, it was something I'd read about um, that was aired at the Cannes Film Festival. And people were saying it's a bit of an odd film to be at the Cannes Film Festival because it's basically a hoist gone wrong film. Um, but when I, when I saw it at the cinema, I thought actually it's quite a... It, it tries to have this arty atmosphere to it. it. You know, it has lots of these long lingering shots, things that fade in and out quite a lot. So the way it's shot, it, I thought it was quite arty for a film of its type anyway. Um, but um, it's a, I think it's quite a good film. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It was uh, quite well acted. Uh, Brad Pitt was very good in it. Um, Gandolfini was good as well. Does, does, <laughs> does in in um, Killing Them Softly, does James Gandolfini play a similar character to Tony Soprano? or He... Not really, no. Um, From the tra- the trailer gave me that kind of impression. Um, yeah, I mean, I can I can see what that from the trailer why it would give that impression because he's he plays basically an assassin, but he's nothing like um, Tony Soprano. I've only seen the first two seasons of the Sopranos. Get um, the rest watched. Yeah, I know. I need to watch the rest. Um, but he's nothing like that. From from those first two seasons, the characters are completely separate, really. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a strange character for him to play as well. It's the only other film that I've seen him in, I think, is um, In the Loop, where he plays a sort of military guy. Um, I can't think of any other films of his off the top of my head that I've watched, but he's nothing like that character either. So it's, it's shown a bit of range, I think. Although he's playing basically an assassin, you know, a hired um, gun, he's... I don't know how to describe it. He's just a bit weird, a bit of an odd character. He's he kind of gets he's, he's an alcoholic basically. He spends his time in this hotel drinking and and you know hiring all these prostitutes and stuff. So he's a bit different to, to Prano. He's not cool at all. He's just a bit of a loser. I think is the best way to describe him. But Brad Pitt is fantastic in him. Some of the Brad Pitts uh, in this. Film Brad Pitt's best scenes are usually when he's playing opposite Gandolfini, which I think makes Gandolfini look better because Brad Pitt doesn't do a lot in those scenes, but he just he's got this kind of presence uh, that he carries throughout the film, and it's in those scenes that he he, he sort of 
shines, really. Um, but there were quite a few good performances throughout the film. Uh, Ray Liotta's quite good. He doesn't have a major part to play. He has quite his character has quite a big part in the story, but his performance is is it's quite good, quite amusing at times, and yeah, I, I quite like that. Um, but it's a good film if you don't know the story. Like I say, it's basically a story of a heist that goes wrong. There's some, and Ray Liotta's character is framed for, for this heist. So the scenes that he's in is usually when he's being uh, treated quite badly, uh, shall we say. It's a very violent film. It's not the same level as like Dread, but it's probably on a par with Looper. Uh, not Looper. What, what was the other film we saw recently? Lawless. That's what I meant. You know, some of the, the violence and it was probably about the same level as that. It was definitely an 18 film. But it's good. I, you know, I wouldn't say it's the best film that's out in the cinema at the moment because we're going to talk about it later, but Looper is one of my favourite well, films of the year. Well, we're going to talk about it now, in fact. Should we do it now? Yeah. yeah, we'll do it now. Let's do it. Uh, so, yes, Looper. Um, we will do a spoiler alert for Looper, as it definitely warrants one. Um, but we'll tell you when that's coming up, so you can turn off if you haven't seen it and don't want it spoiled. But, yes, Looper, starring um, uh, Bruce Willis, like we mentioned, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, and Emily Blunt. Yeah. Uh, Joe is a... Well, he's a contracted killer who kills people from the future who are sent back in time. Obviously, time travel is invented in this part of the future. Uh, who the mob, the mafia, want erased, want killed. Um, and he's sent back a future version of himself who he has to kill. But his future version has his own agenda. Yes. <laughs> but first of all... Um, what do we all think of the film? I thought it was fantastic, very Absolutely enjoyable. One of the one of the best films I've seen since we're doing this podcast, and probably the best non superhero film I've seen since doing this podcast. I was going to say, I think out of all the films we've done, aside from the Avengers and Dark Knight, it's probably the best film we've done. Yeah, it's it's superb, really. Yeah. Is. I mean, I thought it was probably better than Dark Knight. Avengers was a lot of fun. I think Avengers is a lot of fun. This is a different yeah. kind of film, but it's definitely one of the best. I really like Prometheus as well, actually, while, while we're talking about it. But, but Looper's probably the best, like you say, non-superhero film. Oh, while, while we've segued quickly to Prometheus, I've seen a, an advert on telly for the DVD and Blu-ray release with alternate beginning and alternate end, end, ending. Um, really, I'd just watch those on YouTube and wait for the director's cut to come out on um, Blu-ray and save yourself some money. Um, back, back to Looper. Um, pro tip from Steve. Yeah, there. pro tip, <laughs> money saving tip from Steve and all at fail critics. Um, yes. So Looper, what I think we'll do for this is James has sent in his notes, so we'll go off of James's notes for discussion points. I think that makes sense. Um, sure. So his first point was heard some were put off by the Gordon Levitt prosthetics. But after 10 minutes, he didn't notice it anymore because he was wrapped up in the film. Uh, I thought the you know, straight away, and for about the first quarter of an hour, I couldn't get over how good they were and how much he really did look like a young Bruce Willis. Mm. And not just that, obviously he's had the makeup done and everything to make him look like a young Bruce Willis, but his, he's had to learn the expressions and the, you know, the movements and the mannerisms of Bruce Willis to get it across. 
And there was one scene where he was sat opposite um, Jeff Daniels' character. I thought, he's got that down to a T. That's exactly the kind of <laughs> sort of facial yeah. movement Bruce Willis would do in that kind of scene. He was yeah. brilliant in that, those sort of frowns and little, you know, little looks around. Yeah, and, sort of uh, eyebrow raises or sort of mouth movements. It's just like, that is like spot on. Yeah. It's the best it's the best impression of Bruce Willis you'll see. Yeah, and especially that sort of slightly annoyed look when someone says something, he just sort of looks yeah. away and looks a bit annoyed and narrows his eyes a little bit. He was fantastic. And I thought even his voice, he modified his voice a little bit to sound like Bruce Willis as well. Yeah. Which I, I think that was probably one of the main strengths of his performance was just how good he was at emulating Bruce Willis. Mm. Yeah. For a stage, I, mean, I, thought, I thought they did a, a good job. There was one or two scenes where it looked a bit dodgy particularly the sort of main iconic scene from the trailer where it's focusing on his face while he's waiting for Bruce Willis to appear. Mm. I thought it looked a bit funny there, but otherwise, in general, I thought it was, it was really good. Yeah, I, I don't know. You, know. you have to give credit to the, to the makeup department and the people who've done that. I mean, that that's worthy of awards in itself to make somebody who's... He doesn't really look like Bruce Willis anyway. You couldn't compare the two. Well, other people, you could say, oh, he looks like so-and-so. These two don't look anything alike, and they've managed to completely... Make him look like somebody else. Yeah, yeah. and I think as well as that, you know, Bruce Willis. I think he kind of toned himself down a little bit. I saw him kind of squinting, so he had those tiny eyes that Gordon Levitt's got at times mm. as well. I think there was a bit of give and take there. Yeah, yeah. But as, you know, it's interesting. James said that he'd heard people put off by it. No, I, I didn't get. I didn't get put off by it. It was slightly distracting at the beginning. Yeah, I couldn't really. But get only, be, only because I thought, oh, it looks quite yeah. good. Yeah, I couldn't really get over it for the sort of first quarter of an hour. I thought it is really good, not because it's yeah. sort of irritating or off-putting or like noticeably bad. Just how good it was, mm. how impressive it was. Yeah, uh, his it, it, it did look good. His uh, second point was great performances all round um, from. Uh, Gordon Levitt, Willis, Emily Blunt, and Jeff Daniels, and the um, the actor who played the child, who was Sid. Seth was the other guy, wasn't he? The child was Sid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kid is called uh, Pierce Gagnon. He's um, I think he's he's been in like a couple of little things. Like he, he turned up in One Tree Hill as a little character, according to IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um. But he was superb. He really like stole every scene he was in. Really, because he, he, you know, some of the some of his lines, his role, it wasn't like a kid's role, was it? It wasn't like a typical child, if you know what I mean. It was no, they didn't just leave him simple, sort of, no, and then keep it moving along. He really added to the to every yeah. scene. That was a real strength. He, he was, he was... They didn't just use him to move the plot along. He he really sort of became a real strong character in his own right and had some good lines and mm. he had some, some quite witty, humorous things to say as well. But he was playing quite a complex character, but they didn't let, you know, because he was a child, they didn't sort of let the adult actors and adult characters put across, you know, the child's role. Yeah. The, the, the child actor done it himself and he was really good. He was. And he was a great good. character. I mean, it, it was a good performance, but what a an amazing character that kid had for that film. Because <laughs> at first, yeah. it, you know, when you're first introduced to it, you just think, oh, he's just going to be this, you know, Emily Blunt's son. And he's, yeah, he's, you know, but as he grows to the, the whole film, and especially towards the end, I just thought he was one of the standout characters from that story. Just phenomenal. Yeah, I think 
the other standout character who I think was sort of a minor role but I thought was really good, Jeff Daniels as yeah. Abe, who was sort of the boss of the Loopers. He was fantastic as well. Yeah, he, I agree he managed, he managed to be sort of reasonable yet very menacing at the same time, which, you know, it wasn't some kind of caricature villain where he was evil personified. You know, he was he was more of a normal-ish bloke. Obviously, he's a, you know, he's running a firm of assassins, but in terms of it wasn't just some caricature-ish um, horrible, you know, standard mafia type. All I'm interested in is myself. Blah, blah, blah. It, it was it was more of a human character. I think a lot of the characters were very well rounded and human. You know, even Bruce Willis's character mm-hmm. had a lot of backstory and sort of a real human side, and the motivations of him were very sort of. <sighs> For a film like this, you would say perhaps a bit like soft and more emotional and more emotionally available than you would mm, expect it, perhaps it, from this kind of film. It, you know, his, without going into spoiler it too much, his, his motivations were for his own personal gain and, and retribution, or not retribution, revenge, rather than, you know, for any sort of um, greater good. Mm. But it made him an interesting character, I thought. You know, it was it was interesting as well, the way that then made him interact with his younger self, because he was, you know, very wise and saw his younger self as as being you know, young and reckless and selfish and stuff. And I thought those interactions, without spoiling them, between Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis were fantastic in the way they were done. And Willis in particular, his, his delivery was just like classic Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> and it was nice towards the end to see a bit of all-out Brucey action. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll talk about that in spoiler alert, yeah. but that made, I just had a big fat grin on my face all the <laughs> Um, yeah, it, James's next point was um, personally didn't notice any plot holes. Uh, really liked uh, Willis's character, Old Joe, refusing to talk about time travel in the diner, as it will give you a headache. Yeah, it's yeah. a great line. <laughs> it's quite it, well. Yeah, you know, it but felt like all those Bruce Willis it, characters. In, in some films, or like you know, I suppose some episodes of Doctor Who. When they say we're not going to talk about the time travel bit because basically we we as writers can't explain it ourselves, it, it, you just think oh, that's a bit of a cop out. And you could have seen this as a bit of a cop out as well. So we're not going to talk about the time travel aspect of this because it's not going to make any sense. Um, but here it is. You know, we're not going to talk about it. Just take it as this is what's happening. We were talking about that earlier as well. I think the, the main strength of the story actually is it. It, I was expecting to go in and be quite confused and it to be very complex and, you know, maybe have questions or holes. And, and the, the main thing that was a real strength for me was that I didn't have any questions. I didn't feel like there was anything unexplained. It was all very well set out and clear and everything fitted together and it was explained well, but they never held your hand. They never did, didn't have a bloody like, original Blade Runner voiceover telling you what was going on. You know, they sort of trusted the viewer to to read into what was happening on the screen and understand things without having to explain them fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, there was there's one early scene where um, the future is influenced by the past, shall we say? Yeah, as it's going along, and there's no explanation given, and you just left to figure out what's going on. Mm. And I really like the style that there wasn't an explanation given, but it, it was done. It was pitched perfectly in that you didn't feel like it was you know a head scratcher. It was complex. And you know a lot more intelligent than most Hollywood films are, but it wasn't sort of 
over the top and neat, unnecessarily complex and, and everything was explained and felt natural, you know, and you weren't distracted from the film by trying to work out what was going on. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. You know, like Steve says about, you know, in some episodes of Doctor Who, it feels lazy for them not to talk about it or perhaps because they don't even know. But you're right, in this, it, it was it was explained through the actions of the characters, wasn't it? You didn't need to know every intricate detail of how the time travel works because it's not important. All you need to know is what they're going to show you in the film. So it was, I think it was fine that as it went on, you kind of got the grasp of, what was happening, why it was happening, and how it was happening, without them having to explicitly say, this is happening because let's just stop the film for a moment and have some character explain why this is happening. It was good. I liked it. It flowed really naturally. It was, um, it was great. Uh, James, the next point. Loved the cyberpunk look of the technology. Cars with solar panels, gaffer tape to the roof, uh, old school guns, the eye drugs. Yeah, it was a lot of style that went into the film. Yeah. Because, you know, some some of these futuristic things, I think it's too easy for them to just say, oh, well, we'll make it look like Blade Runner. Mm. You know, there's a, that program that's just started on sci-fi recently, Continuum, and the future just basically looks like Blade Runner. <laughs> you know, Dread kind of had that look to it a little bit as yeah. well. You know, but it's, it's great that they've just gone for, well, it, it, basically, it's still set in the future, but everything still just kind yeah. of looks it's, it, it seems that, It seems that sci-fi went the way of when sort of sci-fi first become a, a big popular sort of um, genre, everything in the future, you know, was new and sparkly and mm. shiny. And now it seems that everyone's gone the other way. And every time you see something in the future, the technology's advanced. But everything looks a bit run down and crap. Yeah, just, it just it, it just makes it look more it, realistic. I yeah, guess. relatable to what the situation the characters are in. You yeah, can just sort of yeah. And I love the fact that he drove like a classic car, and it was like a Master MX Five. Yeah. <laughs> but you still had like the hover motorbikes. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I must say, one of the things I did think slightly caught was that it looked a little bit too current day to be 50, well, what was it, 32 years in the future, I think it's set. 2044, from... wasn't it, that it was mm-hmm. that the main body of the film was set and then the time travel bit that Bruce Willis's older version of Joe came from was 30 years ahead of that. Yeah. I think um, one of the things with it, I think it was just early on particularly had a lot of current cars that didn't look massively old. Mm. I mean, like his truck is just a, you know, standard truck from now. Yeah. It didn't look that old. And I felt a little bit like, oh, this doesn't quite fit. Later on, particularly with like police cars, when you see that and stuff, they looked futuristic, but there was, it wasn't quite futuristic enough for me in that regard. Mm. I think it still did enough, but in a way it had the nice effect of making it seem very real. You know, it didn't seem like some uh, distant, time in the future that was completely disconnected from, from yeah. us. It was very real. So, you know, it was a trade-off, I think, between between the realism and, and the authenticity mm. of future, shall I'll, we say. I'll tell you now, I mean, Back to the Future said we'd have hoverboards by 2012. We will <laughs> not have um, hover motorbikes by, what was it, 2044. It won't happen. So, you know. Don't you? Yeah, but you can't have a futuristic film if there's no, no vehicle of any kind that doesn't hover. Mm. That's just like rule 101. No, but it? I mean, don't get your hopes up. Don't use science fiction films <laughs> as, a, as a sort of barometer of what technology is going to be like in the future because 
you'll be severely disappointed. Yeah, Star Trek was quite good for that, though. Do you know, um, what's the guy who played Spock? What's his name? Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, Leonard Nimoy. He was asked what his, you know, because a lot of the things that they did in Star Trek actually ended up being used in real life. And he says, what was the weirdest thing that was on the show that actually ended up being real? He said it was automatic doors. Before Star Trek, the concept of automatic doors was ridiculous. (laughs) But, you know, every supermarket's got them, so I've, I've still got... Hope for some kind of hover vehicle at some point. I bet you make the sound effect of the doors from Star Trek every time you walk through in a supermarket, don't you? <laughs> in my head, yeah, of course. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Um, James's final point before we go on to spoiler alert was marketing quote about this film being this year's The Matrix, but it reminded him more of a cross between Twelve Monkeys and Terminator. It definitely yeah. had a lot to owe to Terminator and Terminator Two. I think that was obvious. Mm-hmm all the way through. It owed a lot to that. And I think some of the sort of cyberpunk style of it was sort of very reminiscent of those 80s and early 90s films, you know, with with that sort of aesthetic. But yeah, it, it wasn't. It's not like The Matrix. I don't think it was... I think that's a, a weird comparison to make, really. I think it, it must have been in comparison to The Matrix in terms of, um, you know the kind of gravitas of the film's got and what it's going to do for this generation kind of film, rather than being like it because it's a bit sci-fi. But I even then, it's as I mean, you mentioned to me just before the podcast started, it, it hasn't done very well in the box office comparatively to... What was the other film? Uh, Hotel Transylvania is absolutely... Yeah. yeah. That just baffles me, because this is just... This is the kind of film that I would like to see more of. It's, yeah, I mean... The thing, the best comparison, I think it's a bit sort of, it's not like The Matrix, it's more closer to something like Inception. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit more realistic than that. And I think it, it does, it does have a bit of a Christopher Nolan feel to it, this film, in, in a positive sense. You know, it, it has that kind of measured, classy, realistic, but also has enough of the sort of hyper real to make it really fantastical and brilliant. And yeah, it's weird that it seems to be sort of, well, not under the radar, but nowhere near as big as it should be. Hmm. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, it should be much bigger than it is. It is, uh, you know, a genuinely brilliant sci-fi blockbuster film. I just can't get over how, you know, how not, it's not poorly received, is it? It's just not as high as it should have been. It's one of those films that I was really looking forward to seeing, and it lived up to expectations, so... Perhaps I'm a bit biased, but <laughs> I think everyone should be paying money to see this in a yeah. cinema. Um, although it's more to go on a Sunday night than it is to go on a on a Tuesday or Friday morning. So, um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's just a, that's just a group of cinemas in general. Yeah. And Empire Cinemas, I tweeted you, but if you're listening, you want to run around the uh, screen with a tin of WD forty and get those chairs sorted out because they were doing my head in. <laughs> Um, right. Odie Warrington, do you want to sort of employ more or better staff, please? This is a recurring problem for me every week. What, what's Obviously, more staff is a problem that there's not enough, but what about what do you mean by better staff? Well, every, literally every time you go, there can be hmm, two people in front of you in the queue and you're there for 10 minutes because the, the staff just takes so long and look like they just want to commit suicide, you know. They just, they look like they hate their job and they hate their life. And it's a bit like, oh, come on, I'm excited. I'm paying all this bloody money to go to the cinema. It's me £11.50 for bloody refreshments today. 
Stop. It's just like, I don't want to wait 20 minutes to give you this extortionate amount of money and go in to watch your, all your advert-filled film. The staff at Empire are generally quite good, but they really need to get some, you know, oil up those seats a bit. They're squeaking like hell. Um, right, we're going on. I, sp- I have nothing but praise for the Cineworld in Didcot, by the way. And so everyone should, every city in the country should have a Cineworld, I'm convinced, because the unlimited card is fantastic. Right, well, that's our cinema <laughs> review done now. We're going to go on the spoiler alert for Looper. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, or um, if you. Well, if you don't want it spoiled, basically, don't listen on. Um, but if you want to hear us discuss it in more detail, carry on listening. But before I go, uh, I'd like to thank uh, the three of us for coming on. Thank you all for listening. Thank Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com for the music at the beginning and the end. Um, you can find us on Twitter at where, Jerry? Uh, at Failed Critics. Yeah, and you can find the website, Owen, where... Failedcritics.com. And you can, well, you know where to find the podcast because you're listening to it. Um, join us next week where we are reviewing Sinister um, because we're boycotting Taken 2. Um, but also in the week coming up, we've got our triple bill favourite films from the 80s, which was bloody hard. <laughs> oh, speaking of Sinister, by the way, the trailer for that was on before this. Before Looper, and it looks fantastic. I'm really excited look, about it. It, it does I look like a, it does look like a good <laughs> horror film. So I mean, we'll see next week. So spoiler alert for Looper. Where do we want to start? Um, let's carry on with James's notes. He's got a couple here. Uh, he thought the telekinesis stuff was a bit crowbarred in at first, but he grew to accept it. Yeah, it, it it was it was a you know it was a big part of the plot towards the end, so you couldn't avoid it. But mm. it was introduced yeah. quite gently, I thought. Yeah. So you didn't really see where it was going to start with. No, it, it seemed yeah, a bit it gimmicky. You, you kind of thought you kind of thought it's going to come up later somehow. It's going to be relevant to the plot somehow, but it wasn't sort of an obvious way of saying, "Oh, he's telekinetic, so it's going to be him." You know, it's all going to. Yeah, it was introduced pretty gently, I thought, and I thought I liked the fact that it was done in sort of a knowing way, in in the sense that it was like they'd all seen sci-fi movies and expected mutant powers to be all these fantastic things, and actually it was something crap like flowing a coin. You know, it it was quite nice. It was a bit of a knowing reference, and yeah, it it it, it was introduced gently, as Owen said. And I thought that really helped later on, as it became apparent quite how fantastic this this kid was. You know. Mm. Yeah, the crescendo that the film just built to with that whole scene in the field and Bruce Willis putting the gun and so uh, it was absolutely one of the best scenes of any film I've seen this year. Not just like in the cinema this year, but I absolutely thought that was just utterly fantastic. It just built really slowly, didn't it? And and built up the tension to that end point. I tell you what, though, the, the scene before where Willis just decided to just kick ass... (laughs) <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. I love the fact that they've just gone, right, we've got Bruce Willis, let's just make him shoot a load of people yeah. and just be awesome. Yeah, we can't have Bruce Willis in a film without him just going on a bit of a, a, a rampage with fists or guns, right, it's guns, here he goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it was uh, pretty badass in that scene. But that's what you expect from Bruce Willis, isn't it? It's what you want from Bruce yeah. Willis. You don't want him in a sixth sense where it's all been a bit of proper acting and a bit, you know... Yeah, a bit serious and, and no fighting and guns and, and punches and anything. 
Did we pick up on the Die Hard reference, by the way? No. I'm going to be really annoyed now that I didn't. <laughs> no, do you know the scene where he's in bed with the hooker whose name escapes me? Um, and she's like, you know, stroking his hair and stuff like that. Yeah. That, that scene? Did you not notice that he was wearing a white wife beater in true John McClane style? <laughs> was he? Do you think? Do you think that was actually a deliberately put in Die Hard reference, or it was just a coincidence? I, I would like to think that it is. So I'm claiming it as a Die Hard reference. Yeah. Uh, James's other point for spoiler alert was thought the film had an honest ending. I don't know what he means. Uh, the ending felt felt natural. Mm. You know, and it felt quite a, quite a decent resolution to things. Yeah. Although, it did. although if he yeah. shoot, if he shoots himself there. How does it get to the stage where he's still alive in the future to be able to come back and cause that situation? Time travel. Ah, uh, well, he doesn't, does he? Because he disappears. Thus, mm. he's been erased from the future. Yeah, but mm. well, then how did he just have all that shit with Bruce Willis? You see, this was yeah. my plot hole, Steve. Well yeah. done. Yeah, how... And, you know, well, they're, they're suggesting that time's linear, isn't it? So anything that happens in the past, there's only one world, isn't there? There's only one line of... Time. So when something happens in the past, the future doesn't exist. It's being rewritten. But um, yeah, but then Bruce Willis in the future could never have happened and could never have come back and caused Joseph Gordon-Levitt to shoot himself. But he wouldn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Ah. Ah. But he wouldn't have gone back to the. Oh, God, bloody time travel films. Let's let's make a diagram. Yeah, Steve. we need to make a, We need <laughs> to make a diagram. <laughs> some kind of chart. But yeah, if he shoots himself at the end of the film, then he can't get older to come back in time to try and kill the child. So then... He's already done it. It's already but, happened. But then if he doesn't... Been... But then if he... Either way, the child doesn't get... <laughs> either way, that child doesn't get killed. So, I mean, the the, the end result's the same. The child yeah, broke the I child. mean, the end is sort of the same. Is in the same way that he is still going to be raised by that lady. Yeah, she's still going to raise him, and it's still going to come to the same inevitable conclusion, isn't it? Mm. But then, yeah. But if he doesn't, could... if he doesn't come back in time, then none of that film happens. So, no. but if he shoots, think, but if he shoots himself, trying... he can't come back in time because he doesn't get that old. Um... But I think what they're trying to suggest, though, is that because of Bruce Willis and. Gordon Levitt's sacrifice, that kid will have actually learned something. The mom will have learned how to control the kid. Thus, it will have, you know, broken the chain, I guess. In the future, there will be no Rain Man because the kid will be able to go on to do good things instead of bad things because he's learned that actually mm. he loves his mom and the mom's learned that I can, yeah, okay, well, this kid just needs a lot of attention and whatever, Yeah, you know. Yeah, well, that was my that was my other minor plot hole was that the Rainmaker exists because Bruce Willis has come back and killed his mum, killed his, kill his mum, and that's what causes him to be the Rainmaker. Yeah, yeah. But then, if future Bruce Willis could influence <laughs> the past, then it's not happened yet. But has do you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's one of those things where I think if you have a time travel situation it's going to be inherently there's always going to be some kind of lack of explanation there's going to be some gap there because simply because it's it's not something that we can conceive of and have scientific explanations for at the moment so whichever way you do it 
however they'd have done the time travel, there would always be something where you were like, well, that doesn't work because our conception of time doesn't fit with... Yeah, it's just the whole... travel. Paradoxes just, like you say, exist in every time travel movie. I think there are different ways to look at it. Primer was quite a good way of looking at it in that it's, it's everything sort of singular, whereas... You know, in, in Looper, it's all linear. Everything happens in stages. So anything that happens in the past will affect the future. Thus, Bruce Willis disappearing, even though he's in the present because he travelled from the future. It's just a bit... It's just basically something that you just need to ignore when you watch Looper, I think, and just focus on how good a story is. Like uh, Bruce Willis says, just ignore it, forget it. It's not important. It'll give you a headache. Mind, just... They did a good job throughout the rest of the film of not making it that important whether it yeah. was or not. Do you know what I mean? They managed to, to keep it going without needing to explain or look at the, the holes, really. It was it was very good in the way that it just ticked along without needing to explore those issues too much. You know, that was that was very well managed by the people who made it, I think. Um, yeah, you were talking about a scene in uh, the earlier part of the review, Jerry, um, about Seth's character or his older character that he get that he let go, and what was happening in the present affecting him in the future. Well, he was in the present, but you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Things that are happening to his his young self affecting his old self in real time. Yeah, I thought that was really well done. You know, the sort of and the the dawning horror on hmm. the older. <laughs> well, I, I mean, they, of... they they basically could have showed. Like gone to the young Seth having um, his appendages and limbs hacked off, and then shown it affecting the old Seth. But they didn't. They just sort of showed it slowly affecting the old version of Seth, bit by bit. Yeah, that's what I mean about how they sort of didn't hold your hand and they sort of left it up to you to to work out certain things like that. It was just sort of implied, and it was left to say, "Look, it's obvious what's happening by what's going on on the screen. We don't need to show you the graphic violence." Mm. And you know, I think. Well, it, it, maybe it would have made it better if you'd had a torture scene for some people. I don't know, but I, I liked the fact that it was just that was left to your imagination. But then, yeah. but then, then you top, just saw the sort of bloody surgical yeah area through the doorway, and that was enough. Time you know? time travel plot hole again, though. They said Jeff Daniels' character said they couldn't kill Seth because he's done too much in the you know in the future. So if they kill him, it won't work. But then, surely, if you're hacking off bits of him as they go along. You know he's not going to be able to do his job in the future and not get to the stage where he gets sent back in time to be shot. Mm. Yeah. The more <laughs> we talk about this, the more holes we're finding in the time travel structure. <laughs> if anyone can explain these time travel holes to us, please send us an email. But that, that future oh. Seth wouldn't have existed anyway because he'd have been shot, wouldn't he? But oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, because he would have to come back. Oh, this is weird. <laughs> This is confusing. Or did... Did, on that subject, by the way, I really liked the, one of the best sort of Bruce Willis lines in the film was when he pointed out that there was another girl who worked in the canteen who could have <laughs> yeah. he could have saved himself a lot of pain by carving her name because she was called Jen or something yeah. instead of being Bruce. Um, yeah, yeah, I did like the way that um, Jeff Daniels, Abe, as well, suggested that when um, uh, Joe said he was going to go to France, he kept going no. I think you should go to China. <laughs> I think you should learn Mandarin and, and go to China. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was good. There was some good little sort of humorous 
knowing uh, things from the future characters that really made the whole world and the whole situation seem a lot more real and a lot more immersive. Do you know what I mean? Like the fact mm. that they were able to draw on those experiences and communicate them. It, it, was, it just made it more more realistic. It was one of the films as well that I wanted to know more about the world they were in, how it had got to the stage where there were so many sort of homeless and vagrants. Yeah. And did they reference what city it was sort of based in, or was it just a generic... No, and I think at one point they said, made reference to one of the other... I think they said like five cities or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think they said the Rainmaker was taking over five cities or something, as if there was only a few cities left. Yeah. Yeah, sort of Kansas and stuff seemed to be pretty all right. All the countryside and everything. Mm. And uh, China City... Get an event happened. Mm. It, was, it wasn't too bad that it affected the cornfields. Mm. And, chi- <laughs> and China seemed to be getting on pretty well when we went there for a little bit. Yeah, they looked all right. Yeah, so maybe it was them that caused it kicking off. But yeah, it was one of them films where you're never going to find out more about the sort of the exterior world of the film, but you do want to sort of kind of know what's going on there. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's where the sequels uh, debate comes into it. I mean, it, it was interesting, James said it was like Terminator, because when I came out of the cinema, the first thing that I thought was, that was like seeing the Terminator for the first time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that world benefited from sequels, I think. If loop, loop, there is scope for Looper to have a sequel now. I think there is, in, there is more there to explore, and, you, yeah. you know... I do kind of want to see what happens to Sid, um, and whether it becomes the Rainmaker or whether it becomes good. But part of me also, you know, with every film, it was a nice story that was self-contained and it could end there and you'd be happy with that. Mm. But yeah, I, do, I want to see more of Sid. I think I want to see what happens to that kid. I think there's a lot of scope for exploring the future a bit more because you never once yeah. saw the future in this film. I think you could have a film where it was still, you know, largely based in... Well, I'm saying the past, it's still in the future, but not the quite quite as future future. Um, and you they the, just had more of the mafia and, you know, more of the actual mm. 30 years in the future part. That that could work as well, you know, bringing that world in. In a similar way to the start of Terminator 2, you see the battle. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I think it would work. Although at the same time, yeah, it, it works really well as a standalone film. So part of me says, just leave it alone. It works. Mm. It's nice. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well- um, that's all for this week's podcast then hope you've enjoyed it and if you um, if you have let us know because it will just upset James that you've, in, he's, uh, you've enjoyed the podcast with um, with uh, out him being on it join us in a couple of days for a triple bill favourite 80s films and then next week for Sinister like I said powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.